So we're going to be talking about the West today. Um, and in this podcast, this is uh, generally meant the Western United States, but given uh, the political situation and the war in Ukraine, I thought it might be fruitful to start our conversation uh, by talking about the different kinds of Wests. Um, we have uh, a West is always a perspectival uh, concept, depending on where you are. Uh, but the West that we talk about in this podcast in terms of U.S. history is is has some similarities and some differences um, with West in the sense that we're using it right now uh, vis-a-vis Russia. So do you think it's a, what, what do you think we can learn by comparing these different concepts of the West? Well, it's a, you know, big, big question. Um, it's interesting in that sense, I started my scholarly career. My first faculty appointment was as a, as Princeton, you know, on the faculty of Princeton University, where on the one hand, the West, anything West of the Delaware river was considered some far-flung province of the United States. You know, that is to say all the important action, at least from the perspective of Princeton, New Jersey, seemed to take place along what I called the Metroliner Corridor, running from Cambridge, Massachusetts, through New Haven, Connecticut, uh, through the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and then through Princeton and down to Washington, D.C. And everything else was sort of, you know, the provinces of the world, the West, in a sense. Mm -hmm. That's not the way in which most Americans obviously see it, and it's not the way in which, in global perspective, West has often been seen. One funny thing was, though, when I got to Princeton, I discovered that there was a Philip Bueller Rollins chair that, and he was a he was actually um, a patron of Western Americana there. But the chair was held by Peter Brown, who is one of the most distinguished historians of late antiquity of of Christendom, early Christendom. And I sort of said, how is a chair in Western Americana? basically, and all these funds being controlled and held by Peter Brown, eminent and distinguished as he is. Um, And it was pointed out to me, well, we take a different view of the West in this case, which was not necessarily the donor's intentions. What I would say there, though, is just that does speak to the fact that West is a concept that has had many different meanings. Speaking here in the United States, most typically associated and often made synonymous with frontier, and or now with the Western half of the United States or some shifting Western part of the United States. Whereas in global perspective, it often was seen as that which was Occident as opposed to Orient, um, that is East versus West uh, and the ways in which Asia and near Eastern parts of Asia or what is West Asia, in fact, would be considered the East and Russia straddling that line in some ways uh, as opposed to Western Europe and Roman Catholicism, and then later Protestant Christianity, defining a, a zone of Christendom that became associated with the West. Uh, and again, through then the Cold War, that took on you know, a new power as West became synonymous in some ways with the first world and in contradistinction to second world, meaning the communist bloc and the Eastern bloc, as it was called. So all of which is to say, you know, the terms we apply and that we use here are not ones necessarily that carry the same meaning elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, let's focus in on our topic, which is the Western part of the United States. And the West is such a complicated concept because there is, it is kind of, it does have a, a specific meaning to it. And the meaning can be broad, but it also has some specificity. And as we know, the West is a 
a multi-dimensional heterogeneous group of territories uh, that we lump together. So is is the term the West in our particular connotation, is it even useful anymore? Well, um, as the director of a museum <laughs> that is about, that is, whose name is the Autry Museum of the American West, I certainly hope so. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to that point in a moment, though, about in ways in which it's helpful and maybe not so. Let me actually provide a little kind of historical background here, and scholarly historically background, and historiographic background. When I came of age as a scholar, again, referring back to my you know, initial postdoctoral career, it was a year, in, those were years of the so-called New Western History, uh, in which the construct of the West was, and as a region, as a place, was sort of in vogue. And by contrast, the construct of frontier, long synonymous with West, was under attack, was deemed an ethnocentric, outmoded concept, that the frontier in Patty Limerick's famous formulation was denigrated as the F word, and that is one that scholars were encouraged to jettison. Now, I was one at the time who continued to adhere to the frontier construct, arguing that indeed that it had uh, it could be reworked and it had considerable power and meaning, and that in fact the term West, as per the last discussion we just had, was itself problematic. West of something being already an orientation that was not necessarily the view of people who lived there would take, for whom it was a homeland as opposed to a West. Um, or for whom it was a North or a South, as opposed to a West. So there was already baggage there, as well as it being a shifting construct. And one time at the Autry Museum, we had a sign um, near the front entrance asking visitors whether they thought of the West as a place or a state of mind, attaching it more to a place of, not so much a place as a kind of mythic set of associations. The challenge I think again, now for us as a museum with the term Autry Museum of the American West as in our title, is I found, especially with my students at UCLA for several decades, that when I would ask them, do they think of themselves as, where do they, what do they think of as, what does the West connote for them? Or do they think of themselves as Westerners? Most of them, and I think most of them were, a good percentage of them were from California. Obviously, there were international students, there were students from other states as well, but a significant percentage were from California, and indeed a significant percentage from Southern California. But for them, the term West did not, did not really include California. The California was, was some, that you had to go East from California to find the West, to get West. That West, they associated in that sense with something not only to the East of them, but actually something that was in their view out there and back then, as opposed to here and now, that the historic resonance of the term outweighed any contemporary geographic, at least for people living in Southern California. Now, um, I disagree with that view. I think California is very much the West. I think of California in many ways today as the Westest West, but I think it's a challenge for those of us who are writing about the West, teaching about the West, running a museum about the West, how do you engage people for whom they now don't think of the West necessarily as where they live, even when they live in Southern California? Interesting. I mean, growing up, my concept of the West was shaped by Western films. And 
my concept of the West was lack of lack of urban density, a general lawlessness, militant. Uh, what's that word? You know, justice that happens uh, outside of the normal constraints of law and order. Those those were my concepts. So if I'm thinking in the minds of your students, they're probably thinking of you know ghost towns in New Mexico mm-hmm. and places like that, and you know, maybe California lost that status when it became urban. But as we know from California history, it became urban almost immediately. So, so it would have lost its status almost immediately. Now, law and order, that's a different discussion. But uh, if you're just talking about urban density and that being associated, I can kind of see where they're seeing that from. Right. Well, so part of it is still the continuing resonance that popular culture or cultural representations of the West as a place of wide open spaces, a West we associate with rural, not urban, a West that we associate not with new, but with old, or even with, quote, wild as the adjective that would be applied next to it. But, you know, on one sense, okay, that's true. On the other, you know, again, for students of the current generation, Westerns of that, of that you know, classic Westerns, no longer quite have the same currency that they once did. People don't grow up on them in quite the same way. I think the images are still there, but they're not quite as omnipresent as they might have been 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago uh, at a time when the Western as a genre so dominated what was on screens, both small and large, television and movies. The other challenge, though, is even the, and I think a generation of scholarship has really brought this forward, that our notion of the West as a rural place, as a West of wide open spaces, is itself historically problematic. The West, since the late 19th century, has been the more urbanized region of the country in the sense that the proportion of people in the West who live in what are classified as metropolitan or urban areas is larger than other areas. So in some ways, it's better to think of the West as a place certainly of wide open spaces, but of also urban oasis, you know, places where water could be brought to, to sort of create large population centers, which is where the majority of Westerners have long lived. And that's not just a recent phenomenon. That's a historical one stretching back more than a century. So in that sense, I think that also complicates the imagery we carry, the mythology we hold, and the historical reality that I think we need to grapple with. So. Yeah. And it's complicated. And I wanted to talk about, um, kind of who controls this concept of the West, because you have a bunch of different forces at work here. You have the academic world uh, that's trying to come to, uh, you know, academic answers. Then you have this uh, film industry that's painting a picture. Then you have development and developers uh, encouraging people to move West uh, to take up residence here. And so you have a bunch of different competing forces. So who, for you, who controls the concept of the West today? Hmm. I mean, again, that's a multi-level layered question with lots of answers. One thing I would start with is, you know, there's a famous line that in the in the West, water flows uphill to money and power. Um, you know, and insofar as one question about who controls the West, at least historically and to a considerable extent in the contemporary West is who controls water controls the West. Um, you know, because of the aridity of much of the Western half of North America or the Western half of the United States, um, with the exception of, you know, enclaves in Northwestern California and along the Oregon and Seattle and Washington coasts, you know, most of the West is arid or semi-arid land. And so it requires water 
hydraulic manipul manipulation and water movement on a massive scale to make possible the kind of life that exists here, um, both agricultural and urban. And in that sense, the sort of in that sense, I would ask, I would say that water is such a crucial determinant of who controls West. But, you know, and again, the, the concept is more complicated than that. And but just in a sense, by defining it as West, as opposed to as something else, some other point of orientation, you are already taking a certain kind of perspective, as, as you announced in your opening remarks. And that already is attaching it to um, the United States as a nation state, um, which I think has good reason to do that. I think, you know, this we are, we do live in the Western half of the United States. Uh, and California is very much part of that Western geography uh, in that sense. And it looks East to um, citadels of power in Washington, D.C. and, you know, and elsewhere. Let's, um, you touched on this briefly a second ago, but let's come back to it for a few moments uh, to kind of set up our conversation about uh, two books you've written. From my understanding in learning about the West in, uh, in getting a degree in U.S. history is it usually starts with Frederick Jackson Turner, um, and that's usually the concept uh, that you begin with as you start to try to understand the scholarly discourse around the history of the West. And then at a certain point, uh, we start to move past this concept of the frontier and it gets a little bit more nuanced. Can you give just a, in broad sketches kind of the overview of how scholarly discourses evolved about the concept of the West? Well, I think your, your question framed it very well in terms of an overarching stretch that for Frederick Jackson Turner in 1893 gives what is probably the most significant paper ever given at a historian's conference, and that is his paper on the significance of the frontier in American history, which is published several years later in the American Historical Review. And it really becomes, for decades, the reigning interpretation, not simply of Western American history or the westward expansion history, but really of American history, that Turner's construct of frontier as this recurring pattern of settlement in ever you know, new, opening up new Western territories to Euro-American settlement, that in that re repeating process, Turner saw the key to understanding the development of the United States and the development of the American people and their particular character as democratic, egalitarian, entrepreneurial, individualistic. Um, all of these things he saw tracing from the frontier process, from the process of settling uh, and then settling new frontiers as the, as the American people made their way west, turning wilderness, in his view, into you know, the, the sort of a, the, what he sees on the frontier as the encounter between savagery and civilization, the triumph of civilization ushering in stages of development, bringing the United States, the flag of the United States, territory of the United States across the continent. And that was the defining feature really of a, not just of Western American history, but of American history as Turner saw it. And that remained through much of the early part of the 20th century, the dominant way in which people were taught the history of the United States. Increasingly over the decades that followed, Turner's vision came under attack first by host of historians working away from frontier settings. And then ultimately by the 1980s and 1990s, Western historians began to turn away from that, turn, turn away from Turner. Um, and to reframe 
their story as a regional story rather than as a recurring set of frontier processes. They began to say, no, let's pay attention to the West as a place, a place as the Western part of the United States, um, and as a place with defining characteristics that set up its own regional history, beginning with the conquest of native peoples and of half of Mexico, and then continuing with the conquest of nature, or really with the, the efforts to grapple with how to how to turn an arid environment into what they saw as a you know, more productive landscape. And that, be, the, that became the way in which the new Western history framed its story uh, on regional terms, along the axis of conquest as the preeminent concept, and with the multi-ethnic character of the West moving front and center. So displacing the white American male protagonist of Turner's vision, the central, the pioneer, the male pioneer, and bringing forward um, a more cosmopolitan and diverse understanding of the West's origins and present um, development, which uh, accented, as I said, multi-ethnic population and conflict along ethnic lines. Yeah, and I I, I teach in K-12 in California, and a lot of our uh concepts around how we are intended to teach history is, is a series of interactions between many different groups. And if you think about the West in terms of the different states, the different uh, native empires, the uh, people that had different concepts of law and order, the land rights, you have this just giant interaction of this like giant Venn diagram of all these different forces interacting constantly. And to have some simple concept that blankets it yeah, it seems to detract from the complexity, uh, but obviously we want to have some broad strokes to help people understand patterns. Um, but it is it is it is tricky to try to create that blanket story because you're just going to leave something out if you do. Usually, well, you know, uh, we'll come back to what you can include and what gets excluded in a moment. I think when we talk about my very short introduction and the challenges of getting this history down into thirty five thousand words. Yeah, so let's let's jump into so, that. So, but, but so let me just say ahead. quickly on because I think your question is a really important one. Look, I'm long been interested in frontiers and borderlands as a historical as historical constructs. In part, and goes back to a term you used a moment ago in describing the interaction. I think was the word you used that these are places of intersection, of cross-cultural uh, mingling and mixings of, you know, of places in which, as I say, political contest uh, or control is at, is, is at issue. And I think that makes for the most fascinating kind of set of interactions, of convergences of cultures, of mixings and minglings. That's one of the things that most fascinates me about um, the history of the American frontier or borderlands or history of the American West is precisely those features. Uh, that's, as I say, what has been central to the way in which I've written about and thought about this history. Going then to the question then, uh, you know, faced with the challenge, I'd written a number of monographs um, about different issues of frontier borderland history. I had written then a world history textbook. I'd collaborated on that. So I had worked on different scales. And yet, in some ways, the most challenging assignment I took on was to sort of write for Oxford's very short introduction series. Um, this is a series of books. There must be several hundred books in, in this series now on all manner of historical and other kinds of, of constructs and concepts. If you look in the look it up online, you'll see just as I say, they're, they're adding 
scores of volumes each year. There are probably three or 400 by now on any manner of concept. But the one thing they have in common is they are limited to, they are specifically and, and deliberately and decisively limited to 35,000 words on whatever subject it might be. And I have to say that I wrote my first draft of the book. I think it came out around 70,000 words. Um, and I thought that was with severe cutting about what was included and what was not. And I remember going back to the editor of the series, uh, Nancy Toff at Oxford University Press, who's also the editor of the book I have coming out this summer. And I remember saying to her, well, Nancy, I think I, I really deserve something more in terms of the number of words here, because I'm not just writing about the modern American West. I'm not just writing about from you know, the 1860s, this post-Civil War era that you sort of resonated with at the beginning of your comments about thinking about what comes to mind, what, what the concept of West conjured for you, yeah. that era after the Civil War in which so many Westerns get set, and or writing to the present then. But I'm writing about the whole of North America as what was once West um, in the European mind, uh, and the ways in which colonization and colonialism had shaped this history across the continent, and indeed writing about a pre-colonial history stretching back millennia, because my the book I said I'm going to start in Cahokia in the 11th century, uh, you know, and write to the or 10th century and write to the present, in a sense. So I'm surely, because I'm taking on a much larger geographic scope than was originally imagined, and taking on a larger chronological framework than might be commonly associated. Surely I deserve some leeway in terms of that 35,000 word limit. And she just said, nope, and pointed <laughs> me to the series um, titles and the two that, well, actually the first one I saw, there's actually a title in the series um, that's titled Nothing. Um, <laughs> and I went back to her and I said, well, I think I, surely they don't need 35,000 words to say what is nothing, even though I guess it is a complicated philosophical and mathematical construct to get to nothing mm -hmm. or to understand what nothing might be. In any case, she really pointed me, the book that she most wanted me to see was there was a book in the series called The Meaning of Life. Mm -hmm. And I had to confess or concede that if you could get the meaning of life into 35,000 words, you could probably do the American West in 35,000 words as well. So I went back and cut, but it was, as I say, a great challenge to figure out how to get it down into 35,000 words and how painful it was to leap because, you know, so much is left out. What I ultimately settled on was some vision that said the con, you know, that the, first of all, we have to take as a starting point that the West has a much longer, deeper, more complicated, um, more, and a more um, diverse history than is typically imagined. That the construct as we conjure it is itself way too constraining. So we have to blow that up in some way in order to sort of reimagine its more expansive possibilities, its more inclusive possibilities. But then at the heart of it, I decided was the story of how it become, how this, how this becomes a West or Wests, and then how it becomes an American West or a West of the United States is itself a story worth telling. Um, and it's one also that's more complicated and more contested, not only over the period in which colonial advance was taking place from the 17th century forward in North America, but even in the present. And who gets to be a Westerner or who gets to be an American in the West are, are also important questions. And what's more, the maps we use to tell the story 
are often as distorting as they are revealing. That the maps that adorn any textbook that you use probably in K through 12 education, which are essential to helping students understand both geography and history are themselves problematic documents that need to be interrogated and re-examined, that they often reflected metropolitan and imperial perspectives far more than they reflected realities on the ground, mm -hmm. or they anticipate borders that are much more contested and uncertain, and they sort of prematurely assign them based on retrospective understandings, which write out a lot of the complicated and contingent history that has shaped this place and other places. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about maps and who gets to be included, you know, in these maps and why. I do think it, we, we do have to have something to give students to hold on to. And that's my challenge in K-12, which is I, I have to give them some kind of schema, right? And the schema is the trick. Because if I just say it, it's diverse and complex and changing, um, then what is tangible there for them? Absolutely. What, what, are you, what grade are you primarily teaching? Tenth uh, and eleventh grade. Okay, so eleventh grade U.S. history, primarily yeah. in that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. I mean, I think it's a very challenging thing, but I think what you said is is crucial as a, as to help students see that they shouldn't treat maps as if they are not also um, documents that need to be critically analyzed and and interrogated. And I'll give you an example because I think the ones you said are good ones too. About where we put in lines that are that are straight just as we create history that seems to move in straight lines, when in fact, the lines on maps need to be more sort of dotted and the mm. lines in history probably need to be also more dotted and, and more crooked in some ways, that they don't run straight, that there is no manifestly destined um, sort of sense of how history unfolds, I would argue, um, to borrow from 19th century American terminology and westward expansion. But let me give an example that in a typical textbook, 11th grade history textbook. There's almost always a map that shows the Louisiana Purchase. Mm -hmm. And it sort of demarcates, you know, this vast territory that the United States acquires. And in one swoop, through a $15 million purchase from, with, from France, the United States doubles its territory. And that's the way the map presents it. And that's the way the accompanying textbook presents it. In that map, erased from that map, is the fact, you know, one, that the United States acquired the right from France to a territory, but a race from the map is the presence of those Comanche empires, for example, or the Lakota empires. These were the expanding real powers in the early 19th century on the Northern and Central Plains, uh, Northern and Southern Plains. But the map shows none of that. The map doesn't list Comancheria or Lakota territory. It doesn't show its expansion or scores of Indian nations who controlled that territory. The map erases that and instead presents and presumes boundaries that were not in any way ordained other than by a treaty, uh, but, you know, scrawled between a, in, in, in Europe between US emissaries and French diplomats that again, as I said, really bore no relation to what was on the ground in 1803. Yeah, or and it, decades after. And it's almost like, I wish there was maps that more resembled um, kind of, uh, a map you might have of the Holy Roman Empire with all these little German kingdoms, you know, something that was just like, so the students would look at it and they would see these like, oh my gosh, this is such a wild, diverse place with all of these uh, sovereign kingdoms all around and seeing the West as 
this heavily populated, diverse place that maybe resembles more Europe and not Siberia, where there's just this open space. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, and of course, by the way, Siberia too, you know, if we're going back to the first question you asked, you know, the, the historical analogy to American westward expansion that probably has the most resonance is the Russian eastward expansion mm. across, you know, the Siberian landscapes and the conquests that that involved and the incorporation of territory into a Russian empire. Mm. Um, you know, that's a parallel between a Western, you caught me in my irony. <laughs> yeah, a westward expansion and an eastward expansion that, you know, certainly deserve to be put together. But going back to the question, you know, in the old days, we used to be able to do it with you know, the old transparencies where you would put something on a, on a kind of on the light screen and you'd put up one map and then you'd put up another one over it that would say, hey, you know, here's one version of what it is and here's another. Obviously with computers, we should be able to sort of improve on what's in our textbooks and be able to do, to create maps that, that provide multiple perspectives and also that show shifts over time more effectively than do the kind of static things that tend to adorn textbook pages. Absolutely. Well, let's let's uh, kind of transition to talking about your new book that's coming out this summer. And but I do want to set it in the backdrop of the the way Western history in context of manifest destiny, expanding of empire, uh, conquering um, of foreign lands. At least my understanding um, is that the kind of movement within the scholarly discourse is seeing it as, as uh, you know, uh, history of the West as a history of oppression, expansion, and empire. Um, but it seems like your book is emphasizing other things. Is, is this just a, another story or is it a different story hmm. that we need to be telling? So the book, which will be published by Oxford again this summer, is entitled Peace and Friendship, an Alternative History of the American West. And yes, you know, even as the history of the American West, the interpretation has shifted and where Frederick Jackson Turner and his disciples tended to celebrate westward expansions, that which, made, that which made America great and made it great again and again as the process repeated itself through different frontier settlements. It was a process, it was a triumphant history of western expansion. In more recent decades, I think to an extent, and both you see this in Western history and in Western cinema, I used to talk about the, the inversion of Western cinema as a genre from John Wayne's Western to Dances with Wolves um, mm. as shorthand to sort of talk about that flip. And in scholarship too, you see something similar where the scholarship, what was once venerated and celebrated now became something to be denigrated and castigated, something certainly to be you know, reckoned with which were not a story of civilization's triumph over savagery, but a story of conquest, ethnic cleansing, genocidal violence, and violence. But in, in a sense, violence was a through line in the old version of that history and the new line. The difference being at one time, violence was seen as necessary to sort of, sort of help make America great. In the newer tellings, it was what decimated Indian peoples, conquered Mexico, created ethnic discriminations and so forth. But violence, bloodshed was central. So in a sense, when I set out to start writing this book about these places, moments, times in which people who don't usually get along manage to find some way to get along, at least for a time, you know, I seem to be writing what I called an alternative history. Now, 
I want to be careful about defining terms as I do in the book. When you Google alternative history, you are led automatically to alternate history. They treat them as conflated terms. Alternate history is a genre that I that's really what if history. What if it had turned out this way? And you know, we see that you Tarantino know, films, yes, and glorious Tarantino bastards. films, The Man in the High Castle, you know, on tele, on you know the, that series that often are interesting in their own right, but they're not history. They, uh, you know, they're fiction, they're science fiction, maybe sometimes they're Twilight Zone kind of history. They move from what happened into what might have happened, what might have been, what if history. That's not what I was interested in doing. I was interested in writing about moments and things that actually happened and trying to explore how it was at these places and times, at least for a moment, adversaries, often Indian and American, uh, managed to to get along at least for a time and trying to explain how those possibilities emerged, why they didn't last, why they fell apart, how they developed, how they fell apart, how we have remembered or forgotten them or how we've sometimes turned them into what I call wishtories, um, the history we wish for as opposed to the history that actually happened. Um, and Still though, even as we have to acknowledge that they fell apart to, um, to also think about what lessons we might learn from them, what, what, what lessons we might take away. And I constructed this as, as I said, an alternative history, something that existed in some ways in distinction from the mainstream history that I wrote about in my very short introduction. That said, as I came to write the book, I came to realize that really, I don't think it's so much a, a world apart in which these alternative histories are taking place somehow over here, and then the mainstream is over here. I came to see it as more an adjacent face of the frontier, an adjacent face of Western history, in which the kind of, there's a lot of fluidity between people who on the one moment could be friends with one another, but as circumstances shifted, or as the geopolitical situations came, or often as the state and its army entered, uh, fragile, tenuous accommodations and alliances could be upset pretty easily. Um, and in that sense, it wasn't a world apart so much as here it exists sort of alongside, sometimes able to claim this space of peace and friendship, or peace if not always friendship, um, but oftentimes then quickly sort of giving way to war and violence for a variety of reasons. And so it's not so much as I think an alternative history, maybe as an adjacent history of the American West that I ended up writing about. But still, I think trying to grapple with some lessons about you know, how these situations occurred and perhaps most importantly then, what if anything we might learn from them? Well, and it seems to be operating outside of this kind of political paradigm of, uh, you know, uh, oppressor oppression uh, narrative, and then there's also the narrative of civilization and barbarism, and it's maybe finding this kind of a middle point where there are interactions. And given you know California today, where we have this kind of very uh, diverse mix of people groups trying to live together and work together, it seems like it would have a lot of utility for uh, thinking about the West today. Uh, you know, in in a you know, where there still is violence, but where, you know, people are trying to interact and live. And, you know, I, I, I think there is kind of this uh, reflex to emphasize, emphasize, emphasize the conquering aspect of it, 
which does need to be emphasized. But if we leave out the peaceful moments, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it tells the full story. And it, and, and it, and it also makes it, uh, it, it, in my mind, turns it into something closer to mythology when mm-hmm. you leave out, when you leave out pieces that you're describing. Now, even if they do end in violence, um, I think that, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can't ignore the, 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 the glimpses of success, um, even if they don't turn out well. Um, what has been, uh, I'm sure you've had people reviewing the book, what has been the scholar reaction to this well, new emphasis? The, the, you know, the book isn't out yet. So oh, I, oh, right, you know, right, right, right. So in the sense, but I've given it, you know, I've probably given 25 or 30 lectures at museums and universities across the country about it over the last several years. So I've seen reaction. Um, often, you know, kind of some again, because it is to the extent it's running against the grain of recent history, you know, recent scholarship to some extent, at least, even though I am very clear to say that the history I'm writing about is, it's not a kumbaya story. It's not a story of, you know, people all just sitting around the campfire getting along, that the reasons people get along turn out to be often more complicated, that they often have no other choice but to get along or the balance of power and powerlessness tends to leave people with either to get along or to at least contain and constrain violence to some extent, or sometimes to displace violence on people elsewhere, group A and group B, finding some degree of peace and friendship in order to make common cause against group C, Mm -hmm. um, in a sense. So, you know, uh, as I said, the story turns out to be more complicated, but that said, and I think coming back to what you said about the state of California and the heterogeneous place we live in, you know, I do think it is incumbent upon us to look for a historical example and to think in the present and future about how is it possible? And again, going back to the question you started with today, you know, as we live in the Ukraine moment, uh, Ukraine and Russia war moment, which seems again to suggest the impossibility of, of this, you know, the, his, the ways in which enmities will, you know, erupt. Um, I think it's still, you know, the challenge for us, especially here. The original title of the book um, was going to be, Can We All Get Along? Um, bringing forward the quote from Rodney King um, at the moment in which, you know, LA was in flames in 1992 uh, during that riot uprising. You know, there was going to be this, uh, you know, I think many people who saw that title would have said, well, the, this is going to be another very short book. Um, and the answer is no, no, I, we can't settle for that answer. Um, and the past does give us more possibility, I think, in that way. And we need to find a present and a future um, in which that question, can we all get along, doesn't simply make us think no. Because I think California does give us example of cosmopolitanism, of heterogeneity, of, of people finding some degree of common cause and common purpose um, that I do think we need. And if our history is bereft of that, um, I'm not sure it's uh, as useful a past as we as we would want it to be, which is not to say we would want to whitewash it or erase the violence or leave out the the ugly parts. But I think we can't just focus on that to the exclusion of the sense of possibility and promise in the past too. And and speaking of the usefulness, um, let's talk about your transition to the Autry Museum. Um, so what led you to, to move away from academia to, um, to museum, uh, directing a museum? Um, and uh, what, what kind of collections um, are housed at the Autry Museum uh, that might interest my listeners? Well, first, I've had a, 
I've had a long history at the Autry. You know, I've had a, there was a period of time earlier, uh, more than a decade ago now, but where I had split my appointment between UCLA and the Autry, and I was doing various uh, things here at the Autry Museum. And I was I've long been interested in and dedicated to expanding the reach of history beyond the classroom and beyond the academy. And so the museums, or I've done lots of television documentaries, consulted on other projects, films, podcasts, various other things, because I've also, I've been looking and devoted to thinking about how do we translate what we do beyond the narrow boundaries in which scholarly discourse is now normally confined. And museums and the Autry Museum in particular has been one of my, and now the chief outlet for doing that and thinking about that. Um, it requires some different ways of thinking. Um, museums work with objects and artifacts and arts, um, you know, as opposed to with texts and documents in the way that most scholars are comfortable with. But I think it is still the imperative of, of kind of reaching, teaching, engaging, entertaining a broader public that is what drove me here. Um, and the opportunity, the Autry Museum is also blessed with wondrous collections, its own original collections with particular strengths in various aspects of Western Americana and popular culture, uh, both for principally 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and then through the merger of the Autry with the Southwest Museum of the American Indian, which was the oldest museum in Los Angeles, uh, the combined collections now feature probably next to the Smithsonian, the largest and most significant collections of Native American material with greatest strengths in, I mean, across the hemisphere, but greatest strengths in California, Southwest and Great Plains, Indian cultures. And so the chance to use these collections to tell the stories that I think are vital and valuable is what drew me here. Um, and I was at a stage of my academic career, my, my career at the university where I felt like um, I could go on. I loved my job at UCLA and the possibilities and opportunities it opened up. I loved the teaching I did. I loved the writing it let me do. But I also felt like this was a, a unique and wonderful opportunity to try to do this on a different stage. And I hope to write, to sort of connect with a much larger audience. And I hope that the people who are listening to this podcast will feel that the Autry is a place that they should come to, to visit and to see the ways in which we're trying to reimagine and reconstruct Western history along some of the lines I've talked about today. But even more, I am trying to take or bring into this museum what I call the view from here approach. I start with the premise that I want history and I want Western history in particular to matter more to more people. And I want this museum to matter more to more people in that way. And I think the road that, I've, that I'm pushing towards that goal is to accent what I call the view from here, to shift the way in which we look at the West. And this circles back to the very first question that we started this podcast. Um, the traditional way of looking at the West is to, is to view it from the East, to look West at the West. Mm -hmm. I said in my opening remarks when we were talking about the concept of West and why it was useful and why it was fraught, I said, well, the problem in California is people don't think of themselves as necessarily being in the West. They think of the West as something out there and back then, something to the East of here. I disagree with that. In fact, I think of California and I think of Los Angeles as in many ways being the Westest West. 
in some ways as being the place where the West was invented, because at least from a mythic standpoint, so much of the West of the imagination is a product of Hollywood, um, is a, you know, does come out of Los Angeles in that sense. But even more so, I think Los Angeles exemplifies so many of the features of the West in its aridity, in its diversity, in the ethnic conflict, um, in the cosmopolitanism, in the ways in which currents from the South and from across the Pacific have shaped this place, not just vectors moving from East to West, but vectors coming from South to North, West to East, that those currents have shaped the West as a whole and they've shaped Los Angeles in particular. And so we can use LA in a sense as the immediate foreground. The view from here puts in the foreground LA and Southern California and California and treats it as a kind of laboratory from, from which we can sort of take in the wider West uh, and work outward from here. Um, I'm not sure yet where this is gonna actually lead in terms of galleries, exhibitions, programs, but I think it's an exciting journey. Um, and for me, an exciting next step in the way in which I try to make the West matter more to more people. Yeah, and I think it's important for, for us to think in those terms as, as being products of something as well. And there are Western mindsets that are different um, when you travel back East. Um, you know, you bring it with you and you can feel it when you're in different places. And oftentimes I feel like um, when Californians leave to go to other places, they learn about who they are um, and uh, you know, what they value. But let's, let's finish today by talking about uh, recommendations. Now, originally when I sent you the questions, I mentioned book recommendations, but you know, we brought up film multiple times and since it plays such a, a big part, maybe let's start with film. Uh, what are, what are uh, some good Western films for you? And what are some <laughs> Western films that you feel like uh, are counterproductive in right. terms of the message that they send? Well, again, you know, first of all, I always say that you should treat, you know, you, and oftentimes, you know, when I've been, when I've been a consultant on films, you know, they often, I've always been puzzled because they've often brought me in to sort of check to certain, to make sure that certain historical details are technically correct, meaning that the button or the clothing is the appropriate costuming or whatever. And I often think, well, you know, kind of why are we so concerned with that de degree of authenticity when the rest of the plot is absurd from a historical yes. standpoint? But, yeah. you know, I've also, you know, to be fair, works of historical fiction do not have to stand by the same, you know, standards of accuracy that we would apply to historical scholarship in yeah. terms of it being literally true as opposed mm -hmm. to merely figuratively. Um, and to just jump in for one second, I find that those movies that you're describing, they needed to do a lot more work on the historical mind than the depiction of the clothing, Yes, you know, that people back then thought very differently right. than we think today, but that's not, you know, it's like, um, my wife has watched that show Bridgerton, which is yeah. on Netflix where, yeah, yeah. you know, it's kind of like gossip girls meets, uh, Jane Austen. Right. And, you know, all the characters are thinking in a modern mindset, but dressing in, you know, in period clothing. In costumes, yeah. Right, right. I mean, look, you again, this is, again, a fascinating topic for broader discussion. I think, you know, too often, I think our students tend to think of people in the past as just like themselves, only with less good technology. But basically living, and obviously there are bonds of common humanity that stretch across time and place. And yet I think people don't grapple effect enough and trying to get our students to grapple with is a really challenging thing with 
how different the world was and how different, therefore, people could think about certain things than they might today. That said, going back to your original question about film, you know, I'm reminded, as I said it a few moments ago in this uh, podcast, when I talked about using the shorthand with my students to say, well, the evolution from John Wayne to Dance with Wolves, and then really discovering that the problem was my students had maybe had some vague idea of who John Wayne was, but really hadn't seen any of his films, just so really didn't understand fully what that icon iconic figure represented. Mm -hmm. um, nor, and this really made me feel old, I realized that most of them had never seen Dances with Wolves, which after all was a movie made in 1991, long before they were born now. So I had to sort of jettison some of that shorthand and I sort of tended to move then to, well, think about Star Wars or Avatar as, you know, sort of the next iteration of Westerns, you know, just moving from one frontier to the next in space and sort of what play from there in terms of it. But, you know, I, I do still go back to classic Westerns. I mean, in the very short introduction, I begin with the famous line from The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, you know, about, about printing the legend uh, and about the conflation between fact and legend in the West uh, and the ways in which those are sometimes hard to, to distinguish and how that has distorted our understanding of its history, but how it's also made for a kind of very interesting intersections between mythology and history. Um, and, you know, I still remain a, you know, someone who says everyone should watch The Searchers, you know, as a powerful film that really grapples with where John Wayne plays against type in some ways um, and where racism is a powerful current in that film. Um, so that's sort of on the way of some historic, some older Westerns that I still say, you know, John Ford deserves to be watched in that way. Um, mm -hmm. Even if we concede that historically he's got a lot of things wrong. I will say yeah. one of my favorites is Pale Rider because okay. I feel Pale Rider kind of for me capture. I mean, it's a California specific one, but it captures this kind of what you're talking about, these interactions between these different groups and capitalism. And uh, there's a lot of interesting things in that movie. But, um, you know, because people sometimes get asked about my views about um, recent Westerns. In fact, I had to I had to concede and, and not agree to do an interview. I think it was USA Today wanted to do an interview on the recent efflorescence of Westerns on TV. And they pointed in particular to, you know, to Yellowstone in 1883. Mm, yes. um, but I confess I haven't seen either of them yet. I don't have Paramount Plus or whatever. I think I'm not sure what, where they stream. Yeah. Now. Yeah. So, I've, I've watched, I've watched Yellowstone and it, it, uh, it would, I would, I would be interested to, to get your take. So I, I would encourage you just to, I, I'm going to have to catch up on it. It, it is I a little bit it, of the so. Sopranos meets Montana. So that's kind of more of uh, what's going on. I tell you, you know, the way you pitch the, you know, with Bridgerton and, you know, and, and now with Yellowstone, you, you really should be pitching to Hollywood studios because you've got <laughs> yeah, down the, maybe. you've got the one <laughs> sentence pitch down. It's blank, blank meets blank, blank. <laughs> you know, so you're ready. You're ready. to. Yeah, go I am. Studios. I guess so. Um, but so, you know, as I said, I think I'll take that as my to-do list is to mm. sort of take on uh, at some point Yellowstone and, and, uh, and, and 1883 as a prequel, I guess. Because mm -hmm. um, these stories are going to just going to keep being told um, for as long as Hollywood is around. And, you know, I think it's, you know, I think people are um, learn a lot of their understanding of history uh, from these, what you know, even though they're fictional, they 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 take these schemas and then just apply them to the rest of history. And so I think, you know, engaging with them well, in a look, serious way is important. 
I think, and it actually, again, going back to my point about the entwined character of history and myth, and this is not a new phenomenon, you know, even going back to dime novels, the way in which dime novels created a certain cowboy um, character that cowboys actually tried to live up to in a sense. So, you know, where the blend of history and myth, you know, what was true and what was not in part was, well, if you're trying to live up to the myth, that becomes then the history. Or even Daniel Boone, a figure I've written about, in, you know, in various ways, and as a figure in my recent book again, you know, he himself becomes a legend in his own time, thanks to the, autobi the autobiography in air quotes here, because he had nothing to do with its writing of, you know, that gets published and becomes a bestseller and, you know, turns him into this kind of, you know, kind of philosoph, you know, who could have been living in the salons of Paris, you know, which is certainly not the plain at all, the world he was from, but he, in, in some ways, tries to live up to his own legendary figure uh, in, in later days of his life. It reminds us that history and myth don't exist entirely on separate planes, no more than maybe my alternate, alternative history and, quote, mainstream history also exist in somewhat in, in entangled ways with one another. All right. Final section. Um, what are what are a couple of books you'd recommend for listeners on these or relevant topics? Well, I'm um, just going to I'm going yeah, to limit myself to one now since we've talked about a lot of various things now. But I want to give a shout out um, and a plug to one of my colleagues, uh, one of the curators who works at the Autry Museum uh, and who would be a fascinating subject for a future podcast of yours. Josh Garrett Davis, who has a book that's a series of essays that comes out of, in part, out of the series of programs that we've done at the Autry Museum uh, entitled, What is a Western? Region, Genre, and Imagination. And one of the things he does as a starting point is try to distinguish between Western with a capital W as a genre, which is you know the things we've been talking about during this discussion, the Western genre uh, as we understand it, versus Western with a small W, which is a whole you know, wide gamut of stories that have been told in a variety of media by people who live in the West or, or about the West that we don't necessarily associate with the genre, but which but should be brought into conversation. And indeed, to give a final plug to the Archery Museum, I think it won't be now till 2023, but one of the core galleries that we are re we're doing is actually that Josh is the lead curator for is, is called Imagined Wests. When the museum opened in 1988, we had a gallery called the Imagination Gallery, or then called the Spirit of Imagination Gallery. It was a sort of, you know, kind of story of the Western capital W genre as it evolved in film, first in silent, in first in actually Wild West shows, dime, dime novels, then in film, television, country Western music, et cetera, toys, cultural ephemera. Um, but it was basically that, that story of the Western genre. Now, the plural speaks to the ways in which the West gets imagined by many different peoples claim the West as their West and the ways in which these stories shape one another. And so that gallery is something I want to plug. The book is something I want to plug. And I guess, as I hope I'm doing, the Autry Museum is something I really want people to come see for the Imagined Wests, for an, for an exhibition we have opening on May 21st uh, and running through next January entitled Dress Codes which looks at iconic fashion about the West and how these iconic fashions have hidden and deeper histories and entangled histories that are worth pursuing. And finally, one more thing about the West, a documentary 
done about the Autry and, and a mural here as part of the PBS uh, um, series Artbound and also carrying the title Imagine West. And I'd encourage people, seek it out on YouTube. If you Google on YouTube or if you just put in your search Art Autry and Artbound, um, you'll find it. It's, I think, very much worth watching along the lines of many of the topics that we've covered in this podcast. All right. Well, I really appreciate you doing this with me. It's been a pleasure.